US inflation was flat in July, which reinforced market expectations the Fed can pause its rate hikes next month. Threats of a strike on the Northwest Shelf have pushed up gas prices in Europe and Japan. That's coming up in our five things in less than five minutes. And then we step back with ANZ's Group Chief Economist Richard Yetzinger to survey the big news this week, China's trade slowdown and deflation, and why more stimulus may not work this time around. Simply trying to stimulate, generate growth through monetary easing or fiscal stimulus is likely in some ways to be self-defeating because it adds to that debt pile. But first, in 5 and 5 with ANZ, US consumer price inflation was unchanged at just 0.2% in July. Core inflation also flat at 0.2%. Both met expectations. ANZ's senior economist Tom Kenny says they point to the Fed skipping on a rate hike at its September meeting. Bond and stock investors initially celebrated pushing up the S&P 500 and pushing down Treasury yields, but they've bounced around a bit since then. Number two, threats of a strike by 160 workers at Chevron and Woodside on the Northwest Shelf have unnerved global LNG markets. Spot prices jumped more than 30% yesterday. ANZ's senior commodities strategist, Daniel Hines, says Europe's pivot from Russian gas to LNG means this Australian gas is now much more important in global markets. Europe is is obviously still facing shortages uh, next winter and will have to reduce output quite significantly to not uh, result in you know forced closures of heavy industry that that use the gas. Um, so its reliance on on LNG is is quite high, and so you know anything that impacts to the level that we potentially see here, and you know these. LNG facilities provide around about 10% of global LNG supply, then you know it's going to have an impact uh, both on Europe, but, but more broadly across the entire LNG market. Number three, Australian consumer spending is continuing to slow because of the RBA's hikes. ANZ's Matty Dunk reports ANZ card spending data showed an 8% fall in spending last week from a year ago. There's plenty of belt tightening going on. And other ways to save money. We're seeing things like beauty and hairdressing. Spending is also down. You know, when I was talking to a hairdresser recently, they were saying that we've seen a big pullback in the number of women that are going blonde because it's too expensive to maintain. So she called it the blonde recession. Number four, the Reserve Bank of India held its main policy rate at 6.5% yesterday, as expected. But there was a hawkish twist with the RBI deciding to mop up some spare cash in the banking system with a temporary increase in the cash reserve ratio. Here's ANZ's chief economist for Southeast Asia and India, Sanjay Mathur. The Reserve Bank of India, the increase in the cash reserve ratio was an interesting thing in the sense that the RBI did express its concern over the buildup of liquidity. There are abnormal factors behind it, but they made it quite clear that they do need to absorb this liquidity. Number five, China's slowdown in consumer demand is hitting some exporters in Australasia particularly hard, especially dairy farmers. Yesterday, ANZ's New Zealand economist, Susan Kilsby, cut ANZ's forecast for the milk payout there by another 60 cents a kilo to around $7.15. 
That's the second cut in a month and represents a $1 billion hit to the New Zealand dairy economy this season. It's all about Chinese consumers cutting back on the luxuries, including food that has milk powder as an ingredient. While we're seeing, you know, Chinese consumers being very careful with their cash and and, um, saving more than spending, we are just seeing that consumption drop away of of particularly sort of the higher end luxury goods, um, bakery goods and the likes. Um, So that is impacting the use of milk powders. ANZ's agriculture economist Susan Killsby there. Now, in our deep dive inside five minutes, we hear from ANZ's Group Chief Economist Richard Yetzinger about the big news in the global economy this week, China's import and export slowdown and its slide into deflation. But the key question is, why can't China just flick the stimulus switch like it did when growth was threatening to slow down in the past? Well, I think the concern that that the growth impacts are short-term um, and fleeting, uh, that, that the conditions just aren't in place to generate a bounce back in growth which is sustained and which is vigorous and which genuinely takes the economy forward. I think there is a very real concern that if one of the issues holding the economy back is some of these fundamental drivers like demographics, but the way they intersect with the level of debt in the economy. And remember, aggregate debt in China is about 290% of GDP, and even household debt is only about 10 percentage points of GDP below the US and Japan. This is not a low-debt economy in any sector. Simply trying to stimulate to generate growth through uh, monetary easing or fiscal stimulus is is likely in some ways to be self-defeating because it adds to that debt pile. So just how big is that debt pile? Some estimates say a third of bank lending in China is somehow tied to the property sector. You've got property sales that have been falling in large part since the pandemic started more than three years ago. The capital markets are largely closed off to the private property firms, so they read their access to finance is much more constrained. If, in fact, they can get some, it will be much more expensive. And this is a story for, for on which we haven't seen the last act. There's a, there's a lot of iceberg under the water here, um, and if China can't stabilise its economy, then I think these issues will continue to bob to the surface. And in fact, even if it can, it would seem reasonable to think that after a couple of decades of very aggressive growth in the property sector, very strong growth in property construction, very extensive rise in home ownership rates, that as the economy slows to much lower levels of growth, that we've got to see some workout and some readjustment in how that credit was allocated. Japan, uh, at a similar period of its demographic change, uh, went into what some call a balance sheet recession. What do you think the prospects are for China in terms of as its working age population contracts, it starts to go into some sort of balance sheet recession? I think there are some elements of that already, to be honest. The, The difference is certainly the scale of asset price inflation in Japan uh, was far, far grander than what we've seen in, in China. So China has avoided the worst risks of, of some sort of asset price bust like Japan did. But certainly there are risks that balance sheets become impaired enough on a broad enough scale that we, we could use the label balance sheet recession for China. Talking about comparisons with Japan can tend to get people a little bit emotive. We don't have to do that. In fact, at similar stages, that I mean, China is a thirteen thousand US dollar per capita a year economy. It's not a poor economy anymore. It's not rich either, but it's wealthier than Mexico, for instance. It's three or four times wealthier than Vietnam. Um, so it's it's very much a middle income economy. 
even at similar stages of development in the United States, the US economy was not growing at 6% in real terms. So we don't need to raise the specter of Japan, if you like, to argue that China should be growing much more slowly. We can use the example of the most successful large economy in history over the longest period of time, um, the United States, to say China's growth is structurally slower. We'll probably never see 6% GDP growth again, and we should get used to twos and threes and, and numbers of that sort of magnitude. Over the last couple of decades, that type of growth we saw in China around infrastructure, lots of concrete, lots of steel, and uh, lots of um, new consumer demand for things like food, um, meat, dairy products, certainly drew in plenty of imports of the sorts of base commodities, iron ore, coal, gas, dairy from uh, the rest of the Asia-Pacific, Australasia. How might this change in China affect the rest of the region who've done quite well out of China's growth? There's no doubt there's a shift underway. Given the scale of China's economy, let's remember an $18 trillion economy more than three times larger than the world's next largest, Japan. China could never continue to grow its consumption of commodities in a way that it had in the last couple of decades. I mean, limits were always going to be reached. Perhaps you could argue they're being reached for environmental considerations on a global basis by everybody. But for China, of course, things are slowing, so that will be different. By the same token, it's also meant that as people look at Asia still as the growth opportunity in the world, their eyes are shifting elsewhere. Foreign direct investment already has, in relative terms, shifted away from China to places like India. ANZ's Group Chief Economist Richard Yetzinger there. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was 5 and 5 with ANZ for Friday, August the 11th. Have a great weekend and look out next week for plenty of central bank chatter with minutes out from the RBA and the FOMC and a decision from the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. This podcast was recorded for publication on behalf of ANZ. All associated disclosures and disclaimers can be viewed using the link in your media player or the ANZ website through which you access this podcast. All care has been taken to report the views of ANZ Research in the creation of this podcast, but as an independent host, any differing interpretations are strictly mine and not ANZ's. Feel free to contact your ANZ point of contact with any questions.